There are very few peers in the performance stratosphere where Dr. Duncan French operates. From Newcastle United FC in the UK to the English Institute of Sports, Duncan has been a pioneer and a game changer. I first met Duncan when he was in oversight of over 700 student athletes at the University of Notre Dame. 14 different varsity sports for female and male athletes, with its men's football team generating over 65 million in net revenues annually. It's a huge program. But Duncan left Notre Dame in 2017 to become the Vice President of Performance for, wait for it, UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, where mixed martial arts combat is the only sport of focus. A simplification of work for Duncan, you may think? Well, not so much. MMA athletes must have incredible proficiency in all forms of combat, from techniques like judo and jiu-jitsu to boxing, grappling, and once they hit that canvas, it's wrestling. It's bloody violence and aggressive survival at the core of these athletes, which Duncan calls some of the best he has seen in his professional experience. Duncan's process, which he graciously shares with us in the next hour, is not only brilliant, but measurable, all performed in an uncontrolled setting with fighters being independent contractors to UFC. Duncan and his team in Las Vegas have world-class facilities in which fighter education is at the forefront of programming. And it's derived from layers of scientifically impressive research. UFC headquarters under his guidance truly is top gun for these cage-based athletes. And thanks to Duncan, UFC not only have a seat at the sports performance table, they have a voice, a loud one, and they're changing the landscape of sports science globally. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast series, consider subscribing, rating, and sharing this show. Duncan, it's awesome to see you, mate, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. No problem, guys. Good to be reconnected. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's been a while, buddy. But uh, yeah, just catching up. I mean, you know, as the, the many discussions we've had around high performance, you know, strength and conditioning, how you've collectively had oversight to a number of really big programs. So, tell us a little bit more about your history, because the first place me we met was when you were the director of high performance over at Notre Dame University, where you had seven hundred students kind of under your umbrella. Tell me a little bit more about prior to Notre Dame. What was the lineage that led you there? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I always say I've had a, you know, I've been blessed in my career. I've had some great opportunities and been around some amazing people that have really helped shape my career. And uh, obviously then you get your head down and you, you just see where it takes you, right? Um, but yeah, you, you talk about Notre Dame. Um, I mean, prior to that, it kind of all started with my PhD back in 20, uh, 2004. Um, where I finished my uh, graduate studies with Bill Kramer over at University of Connecticut out here in the States. Yeah. Um, I then returned to the UK and kind of did some work at um, you know, Northumbria University for a little bit, working you know, in, in, in uh, university sport back in the UK, but um, pretty quickly dropped into the English Institute of Sport and the Olympic programs um, 
in the UK. So what I think I was there for, you know, two two separate stints um, for about 11, 12 years at the English Institute of Sport. Um, I had a, a number of years in, in, in between in, uh, in the English Premier League with Newcastle United, where I was a head of strength and conditioning at Newcastle United. Um, but while I was at the English Institute, I worked with you know, a variety of different sports in a truly kind of multi-sport institute um, where you're exposed to everything from you know, rowing, boxing, uh, track and fields, women's yeah. rugby. You know, they were kind of the big ones up in the northeast where I was based. Um, uh, I and then moved to kind of Manchester where I was leading uh, GB Taekwondo, GB basketball. So mm. um, yeah, I had, a, I had the great opportunity to be around some really cool programs, disability swimming. Mm. Um, you know, so it, it, that that really shaped my coaching. Um, being around all those yeah. different programs, which uh, you know to this day I, I, I hold dearly. Um, yeah. And then yeah, I, I always wanted to return to the states. I had such a good time with my studies, so um, was pursuing kind of coming back to America. And um, luckily enough, landed at University of Notre Dame, as you as you said at the at the head of yeah. the conversation. And then since then, I've moved across to the UFC. Yeah. So let's talk about that transition a little bit. So you go from 700 student athletes in what we would term you know, pretty traditional sports, right? I mean, for the most part, you know, football's your dominant sport and then you've got everything else, men's and women's that kind of builds around that as a, as a structure. But coming from that environment and making the shift over to UFC, even though like Taekwondo, you've had some, you know, some combat background here with uh, the English Institute of Sport. But making that decision to kind of step out of Notre Dame and into UFC, tell us about that. How did that? How did that play out for you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was an interesting one um, because obviously I, I I returned to the US and I was kind of mm. keen to embed myself and establish myself in in the the US kind of sports performance landscape. And I thought Notre yeah. Dame was a really good platform to do that. You know, it's a it's a high profile school with lots of high profile sports, and um, you know, got the opportunity to to really be around them and try and shape them and support them. Um, but quickly, kind of after getting established, about six, 16 months after being there, mm. um, a recruiter called me up and said, hey, there's this, you know, the UFC are, are starting a new kind of performance initiative. Um, you've got some combat sport background that we're aware of, and you've also managed high performance infrastructures mm. with multiple, you know, pr- practitioners and team members. You know, would, would you be interested? And um to begin with, I kind of poo-pooed it. I was like, you know, I can't tell mm. my mum, you know, tell my mum that I'm working for a, you know, cage fighting company or whatever. It might be. <laughs> um, I love it. How, how, how's she going to take that? Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, so initially, I kind of didn't look into it properly. Um, but yeah, you know, a couple of weeks passed. The recruiter came back to me again, and I thought, okay, let, let's take a proper look at this. And yeah, the more I the more I looked into it and spoke to people and, and and figured out where the UFC was trying to go with its high performance initiatives and what it was trying to do for the for the benefit of its athlete clientele, I was like, this is pre- pretty freaking cool. Yeah. So did that like those initiatives, those research initiatives? Because I want to get into those a little bit because some of the work that's coming out of there is stunning. Was that kind of the directive that you were given? Were you given that playground to operate in, to design and pull that research out? Or was that something that they were pretty much on the pathway of creating prior to you coming in? 
Well, before I answer that question, that I, as a segue into it, there was three things yeah. that really pulled me across. No, number one was cool. um, it, it, it was it was a brand new facility, you know, like a, a world class high performance facility that they built yeah. from the ground up, um, and you're walking through the shiny doors on day one. You know that, that any any performance yeah. professional is going to love that, right? Um, so exactly. that that was that was number one. Number two was it was a blank page. It was like Duncan mm. French. You're our guy. We, you know, you're employee number one for the Performance Institute. We want you to hire and shape the team, put in our strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, b- build our initiatives and kind of direct where we're going. And and again, that that's super cool to be given that kind of opportunity to recruit your people, yeah. to build a team of high performance professionals, um, and and just to shape the direction of what you think it should be. That was kind of special. And then, yes, the third thing was it, it's a, you know, MMA is a sport that's kind of pretty green. Um, it's only been professional mm. since 1993. Um, right. So, you know, it's coming up on 30 years professionally. Whereas you look at baseball, 1800s, yeah. American football, you know, 1920s, yeah. you know, the soccer, uh, these sports have been around for years and years and years and have aggregated a lot of insight and data. Combat sport in general is a pretty, you know, pretty blue chip, blue collar. Um, and there's not been a lot of resource yeah. around it. And then also, mm. you know, the UFC was putting all this, you know, this this infrastructure and resource around its sport in MMA and saying, yeah. okay, we're going to look into it, interrogate it, and see how we will build the the best processes and methodology for modern day combat athletes in mixed martial mm. arts. And, and again, that mm. opportunity to really shape the narrative of a sport moving forwards was something that was really exciting to me. How much has this stretched you as a professional? from you know your process here yeah a lot and that's that's been one of the really cool things about it and you know i uh, i always say every day is a school day right um and i think that that's yeah. what that, that that's what this is it's given me the opportunity to grow and you know challenge me in in a lot of different ways obviously you, you talked previously about my, my involvement with many I don't know, traditional sports, you know, soccer, football, rugby, basketball, um, you know, track and field. You know, the, but combat sport, the, there's not mm-hmm. a lot um, of insight. Obviously, it's growing and there's some, some good academics out there now are starting to really look at combat and try and find data and insights around it. And we're trying to do the same here at the Performance Institute. So it's been, mm-hmm. it's been great uh, because the good, th- well, the, the challenge is that the, it, we're trying to process chaos, you know, it, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a fight, right? So the structure, mm. the structure of a fight, whilst it's a dance between, you know, the, between opponents, um, it, it's very chaotic in nature. It's not a linear sport. It's not a structured, um, tactical sport like soccer or rugby, which has mm. got very set plays to it and you can break down, break down the rhythm of a game. Um, right. you know, MMA is chaotic in nature and there's many different mm. styles and many different ways to win a fight, uh, many different techniques techniques that go into it so trying to strip that back and trying to interrogate it and understand it has been um been a real challenge but like that's been yeah. part of the exciting piece to the whole thing sure man what's uh what surprised you the most so far was there something coming in like did you have a set of kind of preconceived ideas around what i'm going to be looking at relative to this athlete and after some time and some data aggregation has there been one thing that surprised you the most well, I mean, before that, I answer that question, I'll make one statement. Mm. Like, th- this sport is, like, the athletes in this sport are truly outstanding. Like, I, mm. I mean, I, I've had the pleasure, I think, of 37 professional Olympic sports I've coached and worked with during, throughout my career. Um, th- yeah. These guys are exceptional. And I think what I've taken away is just how they can 
tactically and technically deal with different situations within a fight um, in a right. fraction of a second. Go from being a stand-up fighter to a grappler to a wrestler in the open to a wrestler against the fence, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah. You know, th- the ability of these guys to switch uh, techniques and tactics is fascinating. And obviously, mm. on top of that is, is laid on the, the physical capabilities that you need to do that. Um, right. But I think I think you know one of the most interesting things that you know immediately sprung out to is, is the differences between the weight classes. You know we have we have eleven different mm. weight classes, and it's it's a very different fight from a heavyweight to a flyweight or a featherweight. Right. You know what I mean? Like when you start right. to pull out the the specifics of each of the weight classes and how tactically they are earning success and we you know we right. do that through statistical analytics through mapping and modeling and regression analysis and you know some pretty pretty interesting methodologies but you know the crux of it it's it's a different fight for every different weight class so that right. really challenge that really challenges our ability to create training interventions that meet the specific mm. needs of the athlete where it needs to be um so that's been one of the most interesting things yeah, incredible. So you've got all these different weight classes and my head immediately goes to, you know, the lighter weight athletes are probably more speed and flexibility and the heavier weight categories. It's probably more strength, power, the ability to sustain and hold somebody uh, over a period of time. Uh, is that what you generally see? And if someone's moving from one category on up, do you have the opportunity to say, okay, well, if you're moving from you know, light heavyweight to heavyweight, here are a couple of things we need to model on the physical system side to ensure your success? Or do you get to touch that at all? Do you, are you just looking at everything externally? Yeah, I mean, listen, heavy hands means heavy, heavy hits, right? So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, yeah. it's, it, it doesn't take a genius to think, you know, the heavyweights are, are banging harder. Um, yeah. and, and that's yeah. truly the case. But I think, you know, even, even looking at the lighter weight classes, when you, when you start to break down the stylistic preferences as well, not only are we talking right. about, um, you know, weight classes, but we're talking about kickboxers versus jujitsu players or wrestlers versus mm. tie boxers. Uh, I mean, it's, it, there's so many degrees of freedom within our sport and that's what really makes it interesting to try and interrogate, mm. but really challenging to understand how to be successful and truly pin things down that are going to be determinants of performance. So, I mean, I think that's that's been fascinating. How much opportunity do you get to intervene or to have these physical systems discussions around adaptation? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's why we're here. Um, and mm. that's a great that's a great question. All of our programming is bespoke in nature. Uh, we don't get, right. we don't have any cookie cutter approach to programming. Here's the UFC method, whatever. Um, you know, w- we take each athlete um, as an individual and we'll build diagnostics around them. We'll then understand mm. their needs and objectives and goals that they're trying to meet from a technical and tactical perspective of how they think they need to win. Um, right. And yeah, the conversation around guys that move weight classes and and some some mm. some folk um, you know sit between weight classes. So there's a real decision around having to cut weight to move down to a, a weight yeah. class or put on a little bit of size and move up to a weight class, right? So right. one of the privileges right. that we have is we, we, we have the ability to build distribution curves within each of those weight classes and we can then give them advice to say, 
okay, moving from bantamweight to, uh, you know, featherweight, th mm. then we can start to compare, you know, the power outputs and the, and the physical attributes of the, the bantamweights. And we can yeah. give you the, the attributes of the featherweights. And we can say, well, you know, you're above average here or you're below average here. And then we can really start to strategically talk to the coach and the athlete about, does it make sense to move up? Does it make sense to move down? Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah. that, that, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, what we have the ability to do by aggregating population norms. So brilliant. You're really getting into the crux of looking at the technical desire of the athlete and matching that up against physical systems. How often does an athlete come in and, and kind of say, you know what, um, I need more of everything across the board. You know, they're probably, you know, the younger athletes I can imagine are really, really hungry. And do you have any issues in kind of communicating with them an adaptation process because everyone looks for lightning in a bottle right everyone's saying oh just change this or alter this and you'll be successful in that weight category how much of the communication uh, goes on explaining adaptation curves and how long that may or may not take yeah i mean that's a great question um, I think in a sport with many different disciplines like ours, mm. so we're a truly a decathlon, you know, with a decathlon of combat sport, right? So, so you know, wh where do you, how, how are you going to be successful? Well, do you try and be av average at everything or do you have an X factor that is like truly yeah. exceptional and you put all your eggs in one basket and hope that that's, that's the way you win the fight? The problem becomes if you're a striker and an exceptional striker, if someone can take you to the ground, you know, potentially now you're going to be in deep water and, and that's going to be the end for you. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of tactics that the coaches and the athletes are constantly evaluating. And we obviously help and support and feed into that kind of philosophy. So when it comes to understanding individual adaptations, mm. it starts, number one, with training load management. Like training yep. load in our sport, as in most sports, um, is, a, is, is a critical consideration. But here mm. we've got athletes are trying to do large amounts of grappling, large amounts of wrestling, large amounts of striking, large amounts of physical conditioning. The management of that across the week and where you put the training units and how many training units you're putting within the week is obviously different from gym to gym to gym and, and, and you know, yeah. coaching strategy to coaching strategy. But we're here as a resource to evaluate, is that the most effective approach or how is it optimizing or regressing your potential? And I think that's, that, that, that's where it starts. But then, yes, we, we then get into the nuts and bolts of the individual athlete to say you know within your within your weight class your your um you know your explosive power characteristics are below average do you want to improve your 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 your, your power output the, the the consideration might come back no actually i i'm, I'm a strength-based athlete i'm a wrestler i'm gonna try and you know grab this you know grab my opponent and wrestle them yeah. to the ground i'm going to use my strength rather than the need for true explosive attributes you know i think that's a very crude example but it, it always comes back to what's the coaches and the athlete's strategy mm. of how they they, mm. they want to win and then how can we complement that with a training intervention that meets them where they need to be Right. So for our listeners who don't know, I mean, one of the things, uh, Duncan, we've unpacked a lot of uh, elite level sports and pro sports here. And one of the things that was always uh, very interesting to me was the degree of control that I had in that athlete's training life. You know, how much access would I have and how would I manage them? But they were all under contract with our team. Now, you've got a totally different situation here yeah. where everybody's yeah. kind of an independent contractor, right? So they've got their go-to specialist. The guys are at the higher end of the pyramid, right? They're going to have their go own go-to strength coach, their own yeah. coach uh, tactically. Um, 
have you had situations where you've given them phenomenal, very objective information around, you know, here's how we view this. Have you ever had pushback from a strength coach or from a physical therapist who turns around and goes, no, that's not the path we're going this path. And for me, that would be challenging, right? Because I want to know that I've given you some a tool and some information that I think you can use to be successful. Have you had pushback in the past? And what percentage of people push back? What percentage of people dive in? Yeah, so we've got a global roster of about 600 fighters that is truly mm. multinational in nature. Um, yeah, yeah. And as you can imagine, the, the, the interaction with that, that roster of 600 is very varied. We have super, yeah. you know, super users that work with us every single day that buy into all of our programming and follow all mm. of our directions. Um, and then there's other athletes which you know, dip their toe when they feel they might need some medical intervention or medical support or you know, nutrition help, whatever it may be. And they, they do very much an a la carte type approach where they pick and choose when and how they want something. So you know, I think you know, having worked in many different examples that you've talked to you know professional clubs mm. where it's it's the same yeah. 25 players that are going to come through the door every morning um, yeah. and i can really embed myself and my philosophy with these 25 players it's very different to what we have here at the performance institute which is a bit more transient in nature now there's pros and cons to both and i've been on both sides of this mm. equation um mm. But certainly, you know, our team, it, it, it's been a, a learning curve for us to understand what's our role in this bigger performance picture. Because as you say, um, these, these fighters are all independent contractors. They come from their yeah. own gyms with their own coaches around the world. And we are truly a support infrastructure, a support service for them. So mm. we can't get ahead of ourselves and say, you need to follow everything that we're telling you because it might not fit into their philosophy or their, their yeah. routine or their structure. So as I say, you know, what, what we try to do is, is build that relationship, build that understanding of what's our role in this bigger puzzle. Um, mm. and, and we very much operate in a, in a support nature, a support mechanism. Now, to answer your question, for some athletes, yeah, it's the kitchen sink. It's everything. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. you know some, some of these fighters don't have large support teams. You know, there might be um, from a smaller gym, wherever it may be, um, that doesn't have a dietitian, that doesn't have a strength mm. coach, that you know, their, mm. their their sports coach, their technical coach is also their psychologist, is also their strength yeah. coach, is also their yeah. dietitian, yeah. is also everything, yeah. right? So you know, right. those guys those guys seek out our advice and our expertise and and really utilize it and 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 run with it, and we can have great success both in person and remotely. Then you've got, you know, some of the larger gyms around the world, you know, particularly in the States and, and Brazil yeah. and overseas, where they might they might employ their own people. They might have their own stakeholders that, that are around the athlete. So, you know, a large gym might have a dietitian that works out of there mm. and they also might have a strength coach that works out of there. Well, our philosophy is we want to bring anyone that's going to impact the athlete into the equation and into the conversation. So it's great. You know, we, we, we welcome them into, you know, our discussions with the athlete, with the coach, come to the Performance Institute. If the fighters come in, come along, mm. want to welcome you in. We want to build that relationship because we can do a great job here of giving you information. But if you go back to your gym and there's a different message being delivered, it, it, it almost, well, it certainly waters down the, the impact, but it also yeah. might be confusing and, and be the antithesis of what we're messaging. So, yeah, it happens. And I think that's the skill of... Um, you know, sports performance. And I think yeah. I would say we're, we're not in a sports industry, we're in a people industry and the ability to connect with all the stakeholders and, you know, have a, a, a beneficial influence on what they're doing and how they're thinking about things. 
is why the Performance Institute came about from the very get-go. It's about right. influencing the ripple effect of best practice throughout the world globally, whether it's in a gym in a favela of Brazil or whether it's in China or whether it's in Europe or here in the States where things are much more established. Um, it's about how do we create better processes and practices so this sport as a whole can elevate across the board. Incredible. And tell us a little bit about the resources that you have currently at UFC, because to me, it sounds like in that process, education and communication become probably the highest ordered metric in success, right? Delivering the right message at the right time as the right, almost prescriptive element for that athlete. So coming into UFC, getting an athlete baselined, uh, and profiled uh, on physical metrics, on physical systems, whether it's emotional, cognitive, um, any one of those physical systems again, or you know, the, the working with a uh, technical coach, working with the tactics. What resources do you apply? How does that all come together uh, inside of UFC? Yeah, I mean, listen, we're very blessed here at the Performance Institute and very highly resourced. So we've got, mm. you know, lo lots of technologies and capabilities that really allow our professionals to do their job to their optimal of their optimal optimal ability. Um, whether mm. it's in sports medicine or strength and conditioning or psychology or sports science, um, you know, and I could talk to a few of those here momentarily. Mm. But the other thing is that we're always cognizant that a lot of the gyms and a lot of the athletes out there don't have the same resources that we have. Yeah. So right. we either have to establish a cadence and a mechanism where they come and regularly tap in and buy into the support infrastructure for particular pieces of information and insights that they need that they can then take away and utilize for their decision making. Mm. Or mm. we've got to create processes and systems and philosophies that might be very stripped back and simple that can be implemented by anyone in, in, in the world. So, you know, whether right. it's, you know, session RPE monitoring for training load, which we've talked about, um, yeah. it's, it's this most simple thing, right? And it, it doesn't, it's a subjective assessment. Is that a bad thing? No, in, in many cases, it can be the most impactful thing. Yeah. Yeah. On the other end of the, we're at the sharp end of the spear where we are very highly resourced and we've got lots of technologies and capabilities where we can pull data from and really get down to the detail of physical or cognitive attributes, whether it's force plates, linear, trans, linear displacement transducers, whether it's vision training mm. systems, whether it's instrumented mm. mouthpieces for IMU and, and, and um, you know, right. getting into a lot of that type of stuff. So it's, um, we've got a pretty robust and rigorous portfolio of diagnostics that we can tap into. But again, it flexes and it shapes based on the answers that we're trying to get to. So again, the yeah. diagnostics yeah. is not one size fits all. It's right. what is your, what's your goals and objectives and how can we take our portfolio capabilities and align it to give you more insights and more, you know, not answers, but more information to help you mm. get to the strategy or the answer that you're looking for. So I think that's the, that, that's the cool thing that we do. Yeah. Well, resource is one thing, but it's knowing how to use that resource and that data, you know, collectively, right? Looking at the interrelationships between data you may get that could identify a rate limiting factor for that athlete's performance. And having said that, like in a blanket statement, even though no two athletes are the same, with athletes presenting at UFC, do you find that there is a common, again, rate limiting factor? Like, is it uh, VO2? Is it grip strength? You know, something simple as that. Um, are you finding that there is like one overwhelming thing that um, is just seems to be missing from that athlete 
and that you attack that and that enables their advancement? Uh, another great question. I'm going to, I'm going to flip it a little bit um, Please. And, so, yeah. and, not, and say not necessarily what are they missing, but I'll tell you what is critical to success. Mm. Right. Um, we're in, we're in a sport of um, capacity. Um, so re- repeat capacity. So whether that's the repeat expression of power, repeat expressions of strength, um, you know, the ability to, make a technical movement and repeat it over and over again across mm. the course of a championship bout is 25 minutes, right? It's five, five minute yeah. rounds. Yeah. Um, this is a sport built on repeat capacity or sprint, sprint intervals, for want of a better term. So that, that's, that's where we see the best guys. And therefore that, that taps into, you know, a lot of glycolytic physiology, um, exactly. Yeah. The ability to manage and process lactate and and buffer those types of anaerobic challenges because that's what the mm. sport is. It's very repetitive and cyclical in nature. But the best guys can do it again and again and again and again. So rather than saying what are they missing, um, that's certainly something that we pursue generically across the board. Coming back to my previous comment on weight classes, mm. all mm. of the weight classes, the more the more repetition of capacity we can get in there. Um, the the better their conditioning four hour sport is going to be. Now, right. the the backdrop of that is, as I say, you know, you've got wrestlers coming in with very discrete physiological background. You've got kickboxers mm. coming in with a very physiological kind of fingerprint. You've got you right. know jujitsu players with a very physiological fingerprint because they've done this for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what happens is we get into the discussion of you know are we raising your limitations or are we maximizing mm. your x factors and what is the right, right time and when is the right time in your training progression to do that you can't just chase you can't just chase the x factors and your super strengths because if you never raise your limitations if someone targets that then that's going to be the the, the, the yeah. process to, to failure right? Um, right so we tend to in our off camp phases we tend to promote raising your limitations and then during camp want to sharpen the knife and make your strengths super strengths and that's kind wow. of philosophically how we go about it. But yes, it, it, it's, it, it, it's a really great question you ask because that is our daily life is like trying to figure yeah. out what's going to be the best strategic approach to make an intervention to optimize the likelihood of this person, this individual being successful. Has there been one athlete during this journey, Duncan, that you felt that was, man, they fully embraced everything we offered and boy, look at their trajectory, look at their career arc. They've advanced either wins and losses in the cage or it's you know advanced the weight class. Has there been one example of that that you could say, yeah, we had an athlete that dived in and he advanced by X percent? Well, I, I, I mean, yes and no. Um, I'm, mm. we, we can't we can't claim that that's that's because of us, right? You're um, right, be, right. Because again, they, they've got their own tactical coaches who's going to be, you know, well, like 70, 30, 80, 20, 60, 40 in terms of technical, tactical versus non-technical tactical work. Yeah, um, yeah. So we, we always understand that, you know, this, this is a complementary approach, but can definitely hold my hat to fighters where their career was stagnating um, and they've come to the Performance Institute and it's been an epiphany in terms of how to relook at their approach to their, their profession, how we've helped them kind of get back on track. And you see that, you know, the, 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 there's been an inflection point again in their career success. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 
talked to a number of those individuals, you know, Jojo Calderwood and, um, you know, one or two others, Cowboy Cerrone, yeah. et cetera. Um, and then you look at other kind of people that were like Francis Ngannou, the current heavyweight world champion. Yeah. And I'm not saying he, he was successful because of us, but we've certainly played a role in it. Um, yeah. And he was very, very raw, technically and tactically very raw. Here's a guy that looks like a Greek god, but we've helped <laughs> shape and support his coaches, um, yeah. take some of his physical attributes and make it more MMA specific. So, you know, we, we certainly see ourselves as a, you know, we're servant, um, you know, servant mm. leaders in terms of we're yeah. experts in our field. Um, but the MMA coaches and the athlete know the best way that they're going to succeed. And we just, we play our, our role in supporting that. So, yeah, I think cool. you can look yeah. to, you know, you can look to some fighters, whether it's returning from injury and long-term rehabilitations, whether it's just actually changing career trajectories by freshening things up and looking at it through a different lens. Um, absolutely, we can do that and, and say that's, uh, we've played a massive role in that. It's amazing because, you know, the sport I was ingrained in, you know, Major League Baseball, I mean, we got to a point where, you know, I kind of knew what the soft tissue injury matrix kind of looked like, right? And and when to expect, like, shoulder tendonitis, again, based upon load management, you know, for, for a Major League pitcher. When I talk about injury reduction, I was fortunate to be able to get a zero injury season out of Taiwan with a baseball team. Pretty easy to do when you understand the sport and you understand load management. I could never see a zero injury occurrence within the UFC, mate. Some of those injuries I've seen are horrific. I mean, sometimes I want to make sure my dinner is well digested before I watch a fight <laughs> because you see stuff go on in that ring, man. It's like, holy cow, that's catastrophic injury. Um, these are pretty, the mindset of these athletes is stunning to me, right? That they're going to go in and they're in a, in a combat setting which you cannot retreat from. And they go into this. Do they have that same mindset and application? Do you see that post-injury applied to rehab and, and scenarios like that? Because it's that, for me, it's the mindset kind of first. And, and do you see a lot of that crossover? Or, you know, if you had athletes that just basically curl up in the fetal position and say, hey, you know, done. You know, don't, you know, don't want to go through that again. What have you seen the most of? I mean, we certainly don't get that because if that's happening, you're in the wrong sport, right? So, um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, listen, like in injury and the narrative of injury and rehabilitation mm. is something that is is always with us. It's endemic to yeah. our sport, yeah. right? So, um, you know, the ability to work around injury, to manage injuries, um, be they acute or chronic, is is a real conversation for anyone that works with combat athletes, and that goes for. Yeah, yeah technical coaches, sports coaches, to sports medics, to, you know, physical um, prep coaches. So, you know, working around injuries or knowing when to accommodate an injury and when not to accommodate injury is something, again, which we're trying to message out to the community um, and and get more insights around. But Mm. these guys will run through a brick wall and, you know, injury tolerance is... is, Mm something which is just that they're going to go through that. They're going to, you know, they're not stopping because of the injury necessarily. So, you know, we've got many guys that fight without ACLs and, and, you know, many guys that have got chronic shoulder issues or, um, you know, neck problems, back problems, whatever it may be. So, you know, I think we've got, I've got a superb medical team here at the Performance Institute. And for the last four and a half years, five years, again, they're starting to figure out the mechanisms of injury for our sport, Mm. the most appropriate Mm. and optimal treatment interventions for those mechanisms. So, you know, another area where we're trying to push the needle a little bit, but 
in terms of athletes, you know, going into a fight and having the mindset that this is a, you know, this is combat, um, and you know, my opponent is trying to hurt me, and I'm trying to, you know, hurt my opponent. Listen, yeah. th- these guys can can you know, you know, unfortunately take a loss, and they're, they're eager to get back in there immediately. You know, so yeah, you know, th- there's yeah. a there's a these guys are warriors um, and there's a, a certain mindset that goes with it. And again, managing that is half the deal because sometimes it's about pulling the horses back and not necessarily letting them run all the time. They need to know when to stop, when to let their body heal, when yeah. to let their body regenerate. Um, and again, sometimes that's a challenging conversation to have because the mindset is, no, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm, I'm going in. Yeah. I need to you know, get this workout completed. So really interesting yeah. group of, of athletes to work with for sure. Pain must be part of their day-to-day almost diet, right? You know that there's a certain degree of pain that's going to be in in your event, in your practice, in your fights, in your sparring. There's going to be that certain degree of pain. I recall one of the most interesting groups I put catapult monitors on to aggregate data from was bull riding, right? I was actually in a stall kind of uh, right, um, I don't even know what you call it. It's a, you know, it's not pitch, it's not courtside, whatever it is, it's... (laughs) I was in yeah. the pit, right? And yeah. I'm watching these guys. We, we put uh, catapult monitors on these little wiry, made of iron steel, yeah. five foot four guys who are hanging on to a bull, trying to hang on for eight seconds. And they would get thrown off at G-forces that I'd never even seen relative to a catapult monitor, right? And they'd run off, shoulder would be, you know, displaced, you know, on the on the wrong side of the body. And you just, you, you're, trying, you're trying not to look and watch. And then next thing you know, he's back out there. And one of the things, yeah, it was like, well, if I don't, you know, if I don't ride again, I don't get paid. Yeah, you know, that was yeah. one of the one one of the mantras. So, you know, it's those mindset applications to knowing where you exist. I mean, you know, it's the good and the bad, right? I mean, you know, we tend to have, you know, sports in the United States tend to be more entertainment than pure sport. Like, no one, no teams get relegated, no one gets relegated. Mm-hmm. But for a fighter who's out there, basically roaring naked by himself fight after fight i mean that mindset about you know this is my career this is my path man you must you must get the chance to see some guys who just really think differently yeah i mean absolutely um th- these guys have got a fighter mentality a warrior mentality and that's what separates them from you and i um and mm. it's fascinating to be around them th- th- these are some of the most fascinating people the most fascinating athletes i've ever been around and like like the most great people like out of the octagon they're just a great athlete clientele to work with like just straight up people tell you how it is and that that, you know that's that's all you want Uh, i mean i think you know the coming back to the conversation around pain Mm. and pain management like so you know again i think the sports advanced from the the wild west days of you know just going and and spar every single day in the gym and that's what's going to make you uh make you successful you know again coming back to load management um mm. you know a lot of it is is technical training and and drilling yeah. um and, right. and not necessarily inflicting pain or receiving pain i mean it's it's about going through the rigors and challenging mm. the physiology and the capacity of conditioning for the sport but you know we, we're also looking into actually how much sparring is should should be an should a fighter be exposed to you know what what's right. the right way to spar when do you spar how do you know when to stop sparring um because that's kind of the the white elephant yeah. in the room is yeah. you know how h- how many times should you be getting hit in the head or how many you know right. what's the consequence of that now yeah. you know that's where I really feel the performance institute has a role to play in helping to mm. give evidential information 
um, to the gyms out there to say, this is what we found. Like you process this and you interpret mm. it how you feel, but we're looking at, you know, the load management conversation to mitigate pain, to mitigate injury in practice so that when you go into competition, you've done all the technical and tactical work. And yeah, yeah. Fact, competition is competition, right? That's a different yeah. mindset. And yes, there's yeah. going to be blood, sweat and tears, but, um, you know, I think managing the training strategy is is the way you mitigate pain and the potential for yeah. injury in practice. Yeah, because it gets to that stage where I can imagine you'll have a technical coach that's saying, look, we need to work on this today, irrespective of where the load yeah. is p- potentially, right? So there's that fine balance between neural acquisition of a specific motor skill and load. Right. And it's oh, like, yeah, yeah. you know, which, 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 you know, which one wins uh, becomes, I think, part of the governing question. And it's got to be an individual discussion. Absolutely. And uh, hey, listen, it, 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 you and I both know, Gary, that that's, that's every sport, right? Te- technical yeah, sports coaches exactly. want to do more and, and the, the medics or the physical prep coaches say, no, we need to stop for the day. So, I mean, take our sport and, and that is, you know, that that's absolutely what we're dealing with. And it, it's not a bad thing. Listen, these guys were yeah. successful long and before we, we appeared and they'll be successful long right. after we're gone, right? They, they figured it yeah. out a way. But what we're trying to remove is some of the dogma in the sport that is not mm. necessarily... Uh, you know, conducive to being successful or is a little bit, you know, th- there's a time and a place to do, you know, just physical rounds just because it's a, yeah. you know, you've got to go into that, that space. Um, there's also yeah. another time when that's the last thing you should be doing. And I think that's, that, that's where we help draw the line um, and mm. give advice and evidence either way. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not that we're going to say stop, stop sparring. It's that right. you know, we're just going to give an athlete and, and a coach some advice as to why, you know, this neck impingement or this issue around the, you know, the knee means that they shouldn't be doing too much grappling or instead of doing, right. you know, your, your eight rounds of, you know, rolling, um, let's just do four rounds, you know, so let's get right. the technical work right. in, but let's, let's just pull it back the volume. So, you know, simple conversations like that, which sound ru- really rudimental, but in the live, in, you know, when things are live in fight camp and people are prepping for that payday for that fight that you've talked about, it, it becomes pretty hectic and, and just having a, you know, the ability to influence and, and, and take the foot off the gas a little bit might be actually the, the best approach. Yeah. And it's funny because we tend to, as, as sports performance practitioners, we tend to always like the Holy grail for me was always finding that adaptation window. Right. And trying to keep that athlete in that adaptation window, which was load balancing for the most part in uh, the sports that I've worked in. But I can see that trying to peak for a fight, a specific fight, and you're probably trying to peak specific skills, knowing your opponent and what's going to be best tactically applied in that sport. So there's got to be kind of a it's probably a jigsaw puzzle. Like how often tell us how how often are uh, fighters in a big fight? And what does that kind of periodization model look like as opposed to, hey, I just got to fight more because this is somewhere in North America, we kind of went wrong with this term load management. It's mm-hmm. like I in, in the sports that I've worked in and around, mostly NFL and, and Major League Baseball now, um, when I was working through those sports, it was the most misunderstood term of all. It was like, well... If we just if we reduce the amount of work he's getting, he's going to be safer. We're going to de-risk injury by basically pulling them back in terms of the amount of repetitions they get, the amount of load that's being augmented. But the opposite occurs, right? We've got no adaptation, then we're actually de-evolving that athlete. In yeah. the day-to-day for that athlete, in terms of peaking, like what's the standard annual 
big fights for guys? Is it is it each month? Is it each quarter? How how do most of the bigger guys? How do they? You know, what's their schedule? Yeah, I mean, you talk about jigsaws. I mean, holy cow! This yeah. is this is the most complex jigsaw out there, um, and yeah. I'm biased right now because it's the position I'm in. But again, I, I yeah, use yeah. my experience in different sports. Honestly, the, the 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 amount of variability in this sport, whether it's gender, weight class, stylistic mm. backgrounds, um, you know, making weight, all this all these types of variables that come into it make it very complex. Yeah. Um, now, you know, the, our fighters normally fight, let's say, quarterly. Um, mm. You know, three or three or four fights a year. If someone's right. fighting five five fights a year, that's a lot of fights. Um, it usually means that they're finishing fights very quickly and take not taking too much damage. So yeah. they're not medical medical suspensions after the event, right? Um, which if you're fighting five fights a year, means you're pretty successful usually. Um, yeah, but yeah. Three, three, three or four is the norm because it can. We're in a very attritious sport, so there is a recovery mm. and a medical requirement post fight um, before going back into competition again. Mm. Um, and and yeah, I mean adaptation led programming that, that that's everything that we're about you know how how mm. do we how do we find you know and again it's it's a, a big message of mine as the performance director is you know how are we meeting the athlete as a single individual mm. at their particular requirements rather than mm. just generic requirements of the sport because that's the way we're going to be most impactful we don't have a lot of time usually um either if, you know if you take a fight an athlete usually has a period of medical suspension or rest mm, right. they'll then drop they'll then drop into an off camp period um now that can be any duration and then as soon yeah. as they get a phone call from the ufc to say we're going to book you a fight they then usually drop into fight camp which is usually about yeah. eight to ten weeks um which is a, a classic competition phase now even in mm. the off camp phase when you talk about adaptation led programming it's still challenged by the status of the athlete at that that particular time let me give you a very crude example, right? Yeah. If if you think about weight management, so if an athlete is, we're a weight class sport. So if, if an athlete's mm. weight is ballooning above their weight class um, when they're off camp, what's the best way to to lose weight or burn fat or, or, or get rid of inefficient body composition? Well, that's yeah. low intensity, long duration cardio um, with calorie restriction. All right, that's one strategy. But if we mm. think about high performance, for our sport, that's intermittent, high-intensity effort that's very carbohydrate and glycolytic-driven, which right, is the, ab- right. the the absolute opposite of that, right? So yeah, even in yeah. the even even the off-camp phase, we're always having this conversation talking about adaptation and programming. Is yeah. are you in a are you in a weight management strategy or are you in a performance strategy? Because oh, yeah. you might, you're gonna if you don't make weight, you're gonna lose money, right? That that's the mm. that's the fact of it. Um, right. You know so. We, we need to make sure that you can make weight so that that kind of supersedes performance at a particular time. If an athlete is on a, on a good weight trajectory for a weight descent, then we can park the conversation around weight and we can really pursue high performance adaptations that are going to be yeah. advantageous to your, to, to your skill and, and your performance output. So again, that's the conversation that we have on a day-to-day basis with the fighters. Yeah, incredible. And, you know, it reminds me of the time I spent some time, obviously, with a, 
dual friend, Sean Holtz, over at the uh, Hills, yeah. now at the Browns, who was at the Eagles. And I remember one of the challenges that we were trying to unpack was his offensive line. And um, this was back in an era where they had Chip Kelly as a head coach, hurry up offense, right? Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, that 315-pound left tackle was missing assignments because he was sprinting all day and they just weren't expecting that, right? They mm-hmm. hadn't created the adaptation for the tactical use of, of of the athlete themselves so yeah it's one of those constant jigsaw puzzles that i don't think everybody understands it's it's when i get asked to write a book on baseball conditioning i i can't right it's mean how do i do that right without being a disservice to the majority of the athletes that read it because i haven't got a diagnostic on the individual i don't know what they're what they're training for are they in a once a week game situation or are they playing every day of 162 games yeah, we don't know. So, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest kind of areas that, like, you're hitting into that I'm guessing with, with your resource allocation at so many sports performance practitioners would love to have their hands on is answering that question. But shifting to that in terms, shifting on that in terms of answering this question, technology. Let's talk about it a little bit because MMA kind of reminds me of a it'd be a low tech kind of upbringing and someone walks into UFC as a great fighter. All of a sudden there's a lot of technology. Do they embrace it? Do they fear it? Do they, are they diving in really deep and saying, yeah, I really want to know this. How do they approach tech? I mean, it's the law of thirds, right? Uh, you know, mm. what, what one third um, see it as competitive advantage in an individual sport. Yeah. So because we're in an individual sport, wherever they can find what is perceived competitive advantage, they're going to jump all over it, right? They're mm. going to say, well, you know, whatever sure. it needs to be, if that's going to give me a foot up, then I'm going to pursue it. So, yeah. you know, one third's going to look at it like that. Another third is basically saying, all right, this is cool. It's new to my sport. I'm yeah. going to, you know, I'm going to go through it. I'm going to figure out what it means to me and how I'm going to utilize it. Um, and, you know, for total transparency, you know, we've had guys that have come and done diagnostics with us and we've shared data and tried to talk about what it would mean in decision making. And they've gone, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take A, B and C, but I'm going to leave D, E and F, you know, like mm. I'm, I'm not, I, that's not interesting to me. I'm not going to mm. really engage with it. And we're like, okay, cool. Whatever it needs to be, we've given you kind of the overview and now we're starting yeah. to really get, get selective, which again is the power of the process. Mm. And then a third are just going to say, no, this is not me. I just want to go and spar in the gym. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm not really that interested in, you know, hardcore data and technology. And, and again, I think the best, coming back to what you said in the previous question, the best performance systems are where the system can flex to meet the needs of the athlete or athletes, not where the athletes have to fit into the organizational system. Now, listen, I've worked in pro teams where there's been, you know, whether it's football, soccer, rugby, where there's multiple athletes. And yeah, it's freaking hard, right? Because you, mm. it's, it's easy to roll out on Tuesday, Wednesday. Here's the practice schedule. Here's the lift schedule. Here's the conditioning mm. schedule. There's still a way to make that athlete specific or flex the workout strategy to meet the athlete's needs rather than the athlete dropping yeah. into the organizational system and structure. Now, I hope that doesn't get interpreted wrong by the listeners, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, what we have the beauty of doing here with an individual sport within our our infrastructure is to really get down onto an athlete-specific level and start having powerful conversations about what are the things that are going to help you. And once, yeah. we've had, once we understand that, once we understand what your goals are, 
Now we can go and find the diagnostic or the technology or the piece of data or pieces mm. of data that are actually going to really help us have a better conversation about where you are at this moment in time and what's the gap analysis to what a yeah. champion is doing or how are you going to be a world champion or a top 15 fighter. And I think that that's crucial to my philosophy and our philosophy yeah. what we do here at Performance Institute is a, a high-performance system has to pivot and flex it can't just be here's the new here's the new recruiting class coming in. This is the system. Here's the next recruiting yeah. class coming in. That 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 to me takes you so far. Don't get me mm. wrong. It it, it right. can really take a kid from you know pretty pretty naive and novel to someone who is very athletically developed. But it's never gonna polish and optimize yeah. to the true potential of the athlete. And I think that's what we're trying to do here is working yeah. with the coaches and the athletes and aligning on an individual strategy because our system allows us to do that. The only models I've ever seen work even in team sports are those that are athlete centric, right? That mm-hmm. put that yeah. in single athlete in the middle of it and then we we kind of work around it. But how many people how many people say that, Gary? Like like let, let's oh. be honest. And I'm not pulling any punches. Like everyone says no, oh we've no. got an athlete an athlete centered model. And, and it's I'm not calling, even I'm close to BS. that. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even yeah. close to that. Show me your org chart. As soon as they pull out an org chart, I'm like, yeah, that's not an athlete centric model. You know, because you've right. got a vice president of strength and conditioning and a nutritionist and you got this and they're all operating in silos and they're all pushing down one way on the athlete without right. having a, a pure sense of, of centralizing them. And mate, I see it all the time. And I think it's the one it's the one thing relative to modeling that probably disserves most professional athletes, um, you know, that I've, I've encountered in North America to date. But yeah, look, I think it's, it's system by system, right? It is. And I think, you know, that's where as a, as a profession, um, you know, in the in performance sport or whether it's, you know, strength and condition or physical preparation as an as a entity, you know, that's where we've got to embrace technology because mm. here, here I am sitting on my throne and preaching and saying everything's got to be athlete centered. And, you, you know, you've yeah. got a team of, you know, 105 football players. Well, make sure it's, it's, in, it's athlete centered and individualized. Yeah. But how do you do that? Well, you know, that's where we've got to look at technology and, you know, uh, athlete management systems and mm. capabilities through cloud and data analytics to, to give us the information. And that's where our industry is going. Um, yeah. to drive to drive the efficiency of the conversation, and I think that's right. where that's where the needle is actually had to move for the for the strength coach or the or the sports coach out there. Right. Is is how do I start to harness this information and harness this data, which was cool in the early days. You know, it's like this is just cool data. Let's collect it. But now people are figuring out. Oh, it's super inefficient. This data is actually yeah. making the, the conversation more complex. Oh. I'm exactly. going to move away from it. I'm going to move away from it. Well, that's kind of the wrong mindset. What you've got to do is find the actual mechanisms to make it more efficient so that yeah. you can pull out the critical pieces of data, which will mm. then drive the conversations for your key personnel to begin with. All right, you've got, you've got to start with your yep. key personnel in a team situation. Like I say, I'm, I'm individual, so it's just one-to-one for us. But if mm. it's a team setting, then your key personnel, your key, your key playmakers, and then obviously from everyone down over, but you can still bucket people in different strategies according to their yeah. organi- organism needs. So, mate, one of the things I think Aussie rules football has been one of those kind of 
beginning sports that really started us on this journey of unpacking sports science. You know, it was one of the first leagues to adopt league-wide technology, being Catapult Sports at the time. So we were learning a lot back in 2010, 2011 and 12, etc. on how load management should occur. And it changed the game. It literally changed the game uh, with that technology. Now, I used to often ask a question, what technology is missing, but it's not about the technology. It's about the data, mm-hmm. right? I mean, tech mm-hmm. is just a portal to get that information and how we can use that information. So having said that, data streams, is there something that you would love to have that if you could ma- wave a magic wand and say, I want to know X, what is it? I mean, yeah, the, 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 the magic wand for us is, is competition. Um, we're in a sport that the athletes wear pretty much no clothing. Um, you know, they have, they have eight weapons, feet, knees, elbows, and fists. Um, so, you know, putting an accelerometer in the gloves will give me punch output, but it doesn't tell me anything about, you know, knees to the face, to the head or kicks to the head or whatever. Um, a portion of the, the fight is grappling where it is, you know, on the ground. So video camera systems really get confused when athletes come together and yeah. that screws up all that type of thing. So coming back to your example of Aussie rules football, which absolutely mm. kind of led the way in terms of load monitoring and, and that conversation um, due to the substitute needs of the sport, right? We, we really don't understand what true competition physiological demands of our sport are because there's Mm. no one piece of technology that is giving us that insight right now there's no one piece of technology that is pulling biometrics and extrinsic workload characteristics at the same time to really help us say okay well there's the north star that's what competition looks like and now all of our programming our interventions are going to align to the north star Right now, we don't know what the north. We don't know what the north star is. We kind of know little yeah. bits and pieces of it, and then we're trying to yeah. extrapolate the rest. But you know, it's not like you can wear GPS or a heart rate monitor in no. our sport. It's it's you know, it's not like you can wear. We don't wear shoes, so there's no need for you know shoe inserts or things like yeah. that. Um, we're trying to get around it in in a number of different ways. We're looking at instrumented mouthpieces now, which I know mm. is you know is, is big in NRL and a- AFL sure. over there, yep. and um, you know some some bits and pieces there. So we're starting to look at how we can look at the the head impacts and if there's a load attribute similar to GPS using gyroscopes and accelerometers through one piece of equipment that all of our athletes have to wear, and that's a mouthpiece. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of noise in that versus, you know, true positives and false positives. Um, but then, yeah, we're looking at video camera systems to, you know, for biomechanical analysis. But again, there's, there's limitations, as I say, with that, when they start to grapple or wrestle, um, so yeah, that that's the one data stream which I and I think our team would personally love because mm. once you've got the North Star, you reverse engineer from there, of course, and you can yeah, really start yeah. you can really start to align everything. But we don't really know the yeah. true demands of competition in MMA, and it's hard because I'm sitting here trying to solve that problem for you, and I'm thinking, okay, then enclose <laughs> the cage, let's do gas exchange analysis. But okay, who's breathing what? Right? <laughs> would be the next question. I don't know the difference between these two guys. So, yeah, I can see the just the broad purity of the sport 
um, creating that inability to get those measures. But there's so much tech coming out, mate, and that's the thing that I see. I must get a call every other week from a technology company who's looking to impact sport. Oh, yeah. you know, a number of them from you know uh, from the UK that look really promising right now too. Uh, more visual neural kind of training systems that I really started to jump into and have a look at over at Leaders the other month. Um, some, some stunning stuff is starting to occur, but at the end of the day... Um, it's that fight that is, you know, what, to understand that athlete's heart rate, to understand their psychological excitability, the, you know, where they are kind of in terms of their presentation. And mate, like Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until someone gets hit, hit in the face, right? I mean, and as soon as that punch happens, how do you react? And what is the, you know, what does that do to change just your breathing pattern and, and system and rate? There's so much unexpected in your sport that, even if we were measuring it consistently, would you see consistency, right? I mean, yeah. there's so many variables. Yeah, and that, that's, the, you know, listen, come back to the very first question you asked me, why, why mm. did I take this job? And th- this is one of the reasons, like, because it's a performance puzzle and it's super yeah. exciting trying to figure out what is the most complex performance puzzle out there in, in sport. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of cool technology. We do a lot of connectivity into military and special operations yeah. units to see what they're doing and where they're pulling right. technology from. Everything, you know, whether it's, like I say, we talk about instrumented mouthpieces, whether it's Bluetooth technology to get heart rate, whether it's patch-based technology where mm. we're pulling sweat and biometrics and heart yeah. rate and accelerometry, you know, that's the surface-mounted and therefore can be worn in grappling exchanges and still won't won't, won't be removed or cause noise yeah, yeah. to happen. You know, so th- there's a lot of cool stuff which we're starting to really tap into and look at. Um, and that's across the board in, in nutrition and supplementation and, and, mm. and brain injury and TBI and how we can augment, you know, those types of things. Um, that's what the Performance Institute's all about. We've got this platform that's been provided to us for, by the UFC. And um, yeah, right now we're running with it. We're doing with some really cool things that, um, you know, I think technology is going to be central, mm. um, particularly for our sport, to get into the point where we need to be. When you say, what's the one piece of data that you'd be interested in? Right now, we don't have it, but I think here in five yeah. years or so, we'll, we'll be sitting having this conversation and saying, we've just revolutionized the sport, as you said, yeah. with yeah. Aussie rules and GPS, because something will come out, there'll be the fix that we need to get intrinsic and ent- extrinsic load characteristics, which can then mm. direct all the strategy uh, preceding competition. Yeah, and it's back to that discussion around diagnostic versus monitoring, right? I mean, and that's the that's the other part of it too. I mean, you can test all you want, but when um, you know, we, we at that point we're looking for correlations, right? We're just in that correlation standpoint as opposed to monitoring something that's going on in the fight. We would see well potentially get signal versus noise and have the ability to create some intervention. Yeah. What's been beautiful for me when I mention UFC around the world, um, it's altered postures, right? Um, People go, oh yeah, Duncan's there and there's a lot of great work coming out of there. Like the research has been phenomenal coming out of there. So yeah, it's it's been an incredible journey for you, mate. And have you seen, and historically, have you seen an evolution in the sport since you've begun? Um, in in the short period of time we've been around as a performance institute, I honestly do think we've we've now got a a real global identity at the at the yeah. seat of the table of high performance, which I don't think was there previously. Um, mm. I'm very proud of that and what we've yeah. done here with our team and, and and how the team have committed to to that mandate. And I think I still think as we've talked about here in the last hour, still so much to do. There's still so yeah. much. Um, 
mileage to this. And, um, you know, that's exciting. Like as we wrap this up, last thing I'll touch on, buddy, is the kind of the globalization of the sport. And you've got performance institutes now where I know you've got the one in China, right? Correct, um, yeah, yeah. Where else are you around the world? Yeah, so, you know, the, the first Performance Institute was here in Las Vegas. Um, it works with the current UFC roster of, of mm. 600 globally. We, we opened one in 2018, uh, excuse me, 2019 in, mm-hmm. um, in Shanghai, China. A um, mm-hmm. little bit of a different business model. It's a full-time academy um, mm. where we're trying to do a talent development pathway um, from the Chinese market into the UFC. Um, that that strategy of, of global in you know looking at different territories is something which I can and can't talk to. Um, yeah. yeah, we've got yeah. one hopefully um, open up here soon to be in in, in Mexico, um, and then yeah. yes, there's, there's other there's other targeted um, other targeted sites uh, around the world which I can't necessarily release uh, right now to the to the community here, sure. uh, but definitely looking at. Um, you know how we can take the performance institute here in Vegas, which is very much a bit of an ivory tower, and spread that wealth of knowledge and the network um, out to different territories where athletes around the world can tap into a more local uh, infrastructure. Well, mate, your journey has been stunning to watch, and it's because of the impact you've had. I think at every level that you've been so far, and I can only imagine what's next for the evolution of UFC. So. Duncan, thank you uh, for this time this morning. Um, as I said, mate, the only thing missing is a beer right now, and uh, <laughs> we, we could we could we could tell even more stories, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Great to be connected, and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for all the kind words. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Human Kinosome Project. Team, the game is just beginning.